welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. My name is Lewis McClellan. I'm the editor of the Digital Monetary Institute here at OMFIF. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Mike Canovitz, CEO of Jurat Blockchains. We're going to be discussing uh, the application of core orders, enforcing core orders uh, on the blockchains, kind of uh, a means of bringing legal protections to the, the digital asset world. Um, Mike, let's let's start off. Can you tell us a little bit about Jurat Blockchains and uh, what, what your motivation was for, for setting up the service? Sure. So Drop Blockchains is a legal tech company that's focused on solutions for enforcing legal rights on the blockchain, uh, essentially in decentralized environments. So, for example, when a transaction takes place on the blockchain, there's no one that's in charge of that transaction differently than, for example, a transaction that takes place through a bank. So if there's a problem with that transaction, for example, if you need to reverse that transaction, you might have a legal right and a court can issue an order, but there's no place to take that order to to have it enforced. You can't call up Bitcoin, for example, and say the court said I'm supposed to get my Bitcoin back, unlike a bank. And so the impetus for us to start looking into solutions around those problems came actually from the consumer protection standpoint. Uh, my other job is as an attorney. Uh, doing civil rights and consumer protection litigation. And we were doing our best to help people who were victims of cryptocurrency fraud and kept bumping up against the problem of these people have actual legal rights and they should win. But even when they do win, there's not much a court can do to help them. And so we started looking for solutions around that problem. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. So, yeah, it's an enforceability question. I, I guess, you know, a lot of the time we hear about uh, situations where, you know, the we need regulation to clarify the situation. But what you're talking about is when the regulation is clear, a court has made a decision, but it's actually just difficult technically to, to enforce uh, that decision to make sure the right thing is actually carried out. So, yeah, we have, you know, a thousand years of common law or thereabout that gives us this whole background of commercial law uh, that, you know, leading up to this day tells us how to enforce contracts, how to apply remedies, uh, how to make sure that people's rights are protected when they're relying on each other to perform. But the problem is that the courts lack the ability to make that effective uh, in a decentralized environment like a blockchain. Mm. And I understand you've you've already had some some experience doing this in the, the U.S. court system. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, about that? Sure. So uh, one of the applications that we've used the technology for is to create a layer one blockchain that has its own coin, its own uh, wallet, and therefore people can transact on it. Uh, the upshot of that, though, is people have accounts on those chains, and some of those accounts <clears throat> can be subject to restrictions. For example, uh, in the U.S., the Office of Foreign Asset Control, which is part of the U.S. Treasury, uh, issues a what it's called the SDN list, but basically a, a list of persons and accounts that no entity is allowed to transact with, at least no U.S. entity. And so we were able to make use of the technology to bring an action in court and freeze blockchain accounts on this blockchain that had been sanctioned by OFAC. Uh, and so because the court was able to intervene, the 
coins that were held in those accounts have been frozen as opposed to the coins that were held in the mirrored accounts that exist on Bitcoin, which got emptied despite the fact that the United States had said that the accounts were specifically listed to be frozen. So I wanted to ask, you know, in some ways with Bitcoin, I think an ethos there, perhaps the founding ethos of Bitcoin and, you know, decentralized payments was about, you know, removing intermediaries and removing control of the state over over payments. And I wondered if you feel like what you're trying is is kind of contrary to to that idea in decentralization. So I guess what I would get at is like, you're right, there is an ethos. I don't know if it's a founding ethos, but there's this ethos of keep the government out of our cryptocurrency. And then the question is, is that really what decentralization is about? Or is it about the technological benefits that decentralization offers? And of course, I think it's the latter. And therefore, the real issue is, how do you make, how do you preserve what's good about all of that technology while allowing the law to function in a decentralized environment? Yeah, it's interesting to see those kind of controls starting to be implemented. I guess, you know, it's kind of a founding, one of the ideas behind Bitcoin at the start was about escaping that kind of control. You know, you transact only peer-to-peer and you get, you know, freedom from control of courts and banks and so forth. But can you talk a little bit about, I guess now that we're starting to see people like you implementing the controls of traditional finance onto a decentralized infrastructure, can you talk a little bit about what the benefits of that are and why, I guess, is it still valuable to be transacting in a decentralized fashion if we're going to be implementing these controls anyway? Yeah. So I guess I would take a step back and think about what we mean when we say controls. Whether you are transacting through the banking system or you are transacting on Bitcoin, the same laws apply so that if someone stole money from your bank account or stole money from your Bitcoin account, those are both actionable. It's just that in one environment, you can effectively assert your rights in one you can't. So in that sense, there's no controls being added that don't exist as a matter of law. And so when we looked at the problem, the way we viewed it and the design philosophy was there's core technological benefits to decentralization. And we need to preserve those. If we were to come up with a solution that somehow diminished decentralization, that would be a problem. What we don't need to preserve is sort of an anarchist ethos that says we're going to use the technology of decentralization to avoid any form of government control. And so the solution that we created is respectful of eliminating intermediaries. That's a core norm of blockchain. Making sure that there is, in fact, no central point of control. Making sure that the ledger is distributed in a way that makes it resilient and not subject to change. And then some of the additional norms that aren't necessarily a part of distributed ledger, such as an open account structure, 
pseudonymous uh, accounts, things like that. So, uh, so, so, so the, the solution as we see it is to preserve all of that while making sure that the blockchain itself can go out and look at what the courts are saying and then implement it. So with Jurat, all of that enforcement is not being imposed on the blockchain. It starts with the blockchain and with each node going out and looking at the court docket and each node choosing to comply with what the court has ordered. Right. Yeah, no, that that, that makes sense. Thank you. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the, the difficulties that uh, people using cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, whether that's for trading or for payments or whatever, what are some of the difficulties that they run into uh, that, you know, in traditional finance could be could be solved by, by court orders or by having a, a centralized entity that, that you're addressing? Yeah. So so the, the, the biggest thing, I think, is transaction reversibility. That's a standard part of payment systems because payments get made by mistake. Payments uh, can be made under some sort of fraud or duress or, uh, you know, uh, so, so, you know, could, could be a, could be the result of a crime or simply payments could get made and it could turn out that in the real world there was a breach and now the person that made the payment is entitled to a refund. None of that works in the decentralized environment. As soon as you hit the send button, you will never be able to reverse that transaction. Mm. So, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I guess uh, that that probably applies for things like bankruptcy resolution, right? Like if some if uh, an institution has sent a payment and it's later ruled that they didn't have the money to to send that. You know, I guess people like uh, John J. Ray the Third at FTX are trying to claw back that kind of money. Then it'd probably be easier if they were able to, you know, with a court order enforce that the transaction could be reversed on the blockchain. Sure. So there, you're exactly right. There's a whole overlay of legal responsibilities on top of these transaction networks. And one being, if someone files uh, for bankruptcy, everything's supposed to freeze. Uh, and in regular transaction systems, what happens is the bankruptcy court issues a stay order and then all of the intermediaries receive a copy of it and then they respect it, they enforce it. In a decentralized environment, there is no analogous point at which to accept the court's order. And so there does need to be a solution to that because otherwise the transaction system is violating bankruptcy laws. Uh, and that's just one example. It's violating OFAC laws when there is a sanction order. Another thing I wanted to ask about was uh, private key recovery, right? Uh, you know, if I lose my login details uh, for my bank account, I can usually get in touch with them and we'll work something out. And that's not the end of my access to, to those assets. Uh, it's, you know, a matter of public knowledge that there's a huge amount of Bitcoin that is... Uh, that is locked up and likely to remain pretty much inaccessible until somebody comes up with a quantum computing way of uh, of decrypting uh, the of, you know decrypting that. Um, can you it, can you talk a little bit about that? I think you mentioned that that's something that uh, you guys are thinking about addressing as well. Yeah, sure. So you know, digital assets are property the same way as as physical assets are. Um, and so if for some reason you lose access to your property, you have a legal right to go to court and have that property restored to you. In a decentralized environment, 
if you lose your private keys, you've lost access to your property, but there is no practical way short of, like you said, quantum computing. And when quantum computing comes and it can solve the problem of the lost private key, it also creates the much larger problem of anybody's account is at risk. So putting that one to the side, you have a right, but you have no remedy. And so with Jurat included at layer one of a blockchain, the court can make an effective order that transfers your property from an account which you no longer control because you no longer have the private key to an account which you do control. Now, there's a bunch of bells and whistles that have to be included to protect everybody's rights on the blockchain, but that's the sort of thing that courts are very good at deciding. Does that rely on me having stored it with an intermediary or is it something that you don't need an intermediary for? Right. No. So if you've stored it with an intermediary, you're essentially in the same situation as with a bank. There is someone else that is in control of your funds and you can serve them with a court order. The problem, of course, is you're in the same situation as a bank. You haven't really gotten any benefit from holding digital assets. You're intermediated. You're centralized. There's an attack vector other than through your own custody. So what the Jurat solution allows is to remain unhosted, not intermediated, and still be able to enjoy the benefit of enforcing that legal right. So the court interacts with the blockchain directly rather than with a custodian or something like that? Yeah. And actually, the way we architected it, it's the blockchain that goes out and interacts with the court's docket rather than empowering the judge with, for example, a private key. Because, again, that would deprive the blockchain of a lot of those benefits we talked about before. There'd now be a central point of attack. Yeah, I guess that would just make the judge that figure. Yeah, I suppose. So it's interesting. A few years ago, there were still plenty of people talking about crypto with the traditional principle of not your keys, not your crypto. And there's a lot of people who are still anti-custodians. But what I'm seeing, certainly in institutional use cases and as it becomes more popular, people are generally more comfortable with custodians and unwilling to kind of take on the responsibility of managing private keys themselves. And possibly that's because they're worried about recoverability issues. Do you feel like we're going to continue to see custodians stepping in to sort of reduce the frictions of direct exposure? Or are we going to go back to more decentralized, you know, the purer decentralized model? So I agree. So for the way things work right now, there is an impetus to have custodians precisely because most people, first of all, don't even know how to operate a wallet. And once they do understand it, most of them don't want the responsibility of having to self-custody in a way where they could lose control of their assets. And a custodian takes care of those problems. What having a system that's set up around custodians holding your crypto, though, does is it deprives you of anonymity. It deprives you of privacy. It puts an intermediary in the way it increases costs. 
So if you could have the best of both worlds, I think that is where this will go. That's something we're solving for. And, you know, if it doesn't go that direction, then I think what you end up with is a world of custodians who can take advantage of the blockchain as between themselves, but the ultimate consumers aren't really getting the benefit of blockchain technology. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Just on the question of institutional level use cases, I think for a variety of reasons, I think the institutions I've been speaking to about holding crypto, a lot of them are talking about using custodians. And I guess if you're an asset manager, you're very used to having that kind of relationship with custody banks and so on. But one of the concerns, I guess, is around privacy. You mentioned that already. Can you talk a little bit about the sorts of use cases that are important for businesses rather than individuals or anything specific for them? So use cases for businesses, I guess, in general, it will be creating products that consumers can enjoy through those businesses. So tokenization, for example, is something that is going to take place on an institutional level. And that could be tokenization of something that's digitally native or tokenization of real world assets. I think that both of those forms of tokenization will become killer apps for blockchain. And I don't think that that's particularly a controversial position either. The problem or one of the problems of getting there is how do you make a tokenized asset coordinate with the legal rights that are inherent in the asset that is being tokenized? So, for example, if you're going to take the deed to your house and put it on the blockchain, how can you ensure that the token that is now the deed reflects the legal rights in the underlying asset, which is your house? So, for example, if someone comes and fixes your house and they don't get paid, they've got a mechanics lien. If the taxes don't get paid, the government's got a tax lien. If you default on your mortgage or the mortgage gets sold, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there has to be some organ through which those legal rights become reflected in the token or the distribution or fractionalization of the token. And that can either be through an intermediary or it can be through the legal system in a decentralized way. Yeah, that's a really interesting different use case there. I wanted to go back to something you said a little bit before about, you know, when I mentioned the judge going to interact directly with the blockchain and you pointed out it's kind of the other way around. Can you talk us through that? I understand it's about avoiding a situation where the judge becomes a sort of centralizing, you know, a central focus of power in the blockchain. But can you talk a little bit about how that's achieved and what the advantages are? Sure. So we had the design philosophy behind the solution that we felt was appropriate was one, don't reduce decentralization. Don't deprive the blockchain of the benefits that the technology offers. And two, you can't tell judges how to go about doing judicial business. You know, we can't change the way courts operate in order to accommodate blockchain. So the enforcement really has to take place on the blockchain side to accomplish both of those goals. The solution that we came up with involves empowering the litigants to provide the court with the information that the blockchain can then use 
to understand a court order. So essentially, if I had a dispute with you and I said, you owe me 10 coins and you said, no, I only owe you three coins, then I would generate a hash of a 10-coin transaction. You would generate a hash of a three-coin transaction, and then we'd go through the rigmarole of litigation the way we normally do, evidence and witnesses and a trial if we have to, and the judge is going to side with either you or me. If the judge sides with you, the judge writes the opinion as they always would and includes your three-coin hash as just pasted into the order. Once that's docketed, each of the nodes in our blockchain can go out and look at the court docket. So once the court case was concluded, a transaction would get entered that says, you know what, I don't have Lewis's private key, but I have this court order, just go out and look at the docket, and each node would then go look at it. And if the nodes confirmed to the satisfaction of the node operator that that's what the court is saying should happen, then the transaction would get confirmed the same way as if it was signed by a private key. But that's taking place all on the blockchain side and is all a form of consensus by the miners that are operating a blockchain that has that capability. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. It's quite elegant. But can we talk a little bit about how this is implemented? I mean, you mentioned the Jurat BTC blockchain. You've got a proprietary layer one system. And when you're talking there, you're talking in fairly vague terms about the consensus style. Is this something that needs to be kind of built from the ground up on a new blockchain, or is this something that can be kind of retrofitted onto existing blockchains? So any blockchains update the node software somewhat routinely. You know, Bitcoin far more rarely than others, which is part of the reason why people like Bitcoin is because it's conservative in a sense and that it doesn't change very much over time. But updates are pushed out. And if you include something like this capability, that would be considered a fork of the blockchain. But that can be driven by the community that is currently involved in the blockchain. Or you could implement a blockchain from the beginning, from a genesis block that includes this capability. That's to have it at layer one, which is where the law could be enforced in a compulsory way. And you could have something that's very analogous to the legal right enforcement of the current financial system. You can also simply include it in a smart contract, which would be a voluntary decision by the parties to that smart contract. And that could allow parties to enforce contract rights that are being reflected in that smart contract. Could also allow third parties to enforce the law to the extent that third parties to a contract are allowed to enforce the law. So as an example, if there was a DeFi protocols are run on smart contracts. DeFi protocols get exploited because no matter what you do, when you write the smart contract, the actual code of the smart contract, you cannot perfectly capture the intent of the people participating in the DeFi protocol. And therefore, there's always some way for a smart hacker to cause the smart contract to do something that the parties don't really intend for it to do. Now, if that was a textual contract, a court can simply reform it and say the text that you drafted doesn't really reflect the party's intent. So I'm going to change the contract to reflect the party's intent. In the current state of smart contracts, you can't do that. But if you had Jurat incorporated into your smart contract, 
you could do that. See, okay. Uh, so it's a fairly flexible implementation thing. It doesn't have to be a new blockchain from scratch. You can fork to it, et cetera. Yeah, there's options. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to ask about, in terms of courts as the enforcement uh, agents for this, um, obviously, I mean, particularly in the U.S., there's kind of a, a turf war between various regulatory agencies about uh, where cryptocurrency trading uh, should sit and where the, where the rules uh, should be written. Um, is there kind of a, a thought process that, you know, they could form their own body to, to deal with disputes like this? Or, uh, yeah, what, why was this something that you felt like was best done via the, the courts? So, so I think that the courts are the ideal place for the connection or the nexus between the blockchain and the government to take place because courts are already the organ where government power meets the individual, meets you know, commercial contracts, those disputes get decided in courts. Uh, the, the technology that we've worked out allows courts to interface with blockchains in a way that remains decentralized. If you took that process and, and instead located it with a specific government agency or multiple government agencies, you could, you would be basically be empowering government officials to act directly against the blockchain when in an analogous circumstance if it was a bank account for example they would have to go through the courts mm-hmm. so 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 we, we put the the location of enforcement where constitutionally at least i believe it belongs uh we put it in a place where the maximum amount of decentralization is maintained uh if, if instead you locate it in, in the hands of a specific government official well, that is now a centralized authority, a central point of failure. Uh, and so you've lost benefits of the blockchain by imposing a specific regulatory, not, not a regulatory regime, but a regulatory point of control. Uh, and it's unnecessary. If, if right now, if, if a corporation violates regulations, the government agency brings an enforcement action in court. And it's the court order that ultimately causes the enforcement of that regulation. So we're, we're preserving the system as it exists, but making it applicable to new technology. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess I was asking the question because, you know, the, the regulatory agencies are talking are always talking about how they need a lot of uh technical expertise and, and deep understanding of the, the cryptocurrency market to to write the rules for these things. But what you're talking about, it's really just the existing rules and there's it's a fairly uh, light technical load for the courts to lift in order to, to rule on these things effectively. They don't really have to deal with that side of it at all. Yeah, I'd say there's two, two levels to it. One is that there's no reason why much of the regulatory landscape can't apply as long as there is technologically a way for it to be enforceable. Mm -hmm. And then separately, there are some things that need to change to reflect the fact that, you know, we've now, people are driving automobiles instead of, you know, buggies with whips and and horses, right? Yeah. Um, But uh, as to the former, there, you don't have to reinvent all of that because you, you can have an effective way to enforce it. An example right now of, of the way that the regulators are struggling is taking KYC 
and turning it from a method of gathering data to a method of being able to enforce the law IRL. So, so the, so, so that, that fundamental addition to the, the, the reasons for using KYC are now requiring a, a, a vast expansion of the entities that are going to have KYC responsibilities. And that's not necessary if a court can do the same things on the blockchain that it can do in the current financial system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So changing as, as little as possible about how that works, I suppose. Yeah, uh, and, and it's it's a it's a heavy, heavy lift to to massively expand KYC. Hmm. So there was another thing I wanted to ask about. Uh, I, I don't know if you've seen uh, much about it in the news, but um, the the Tornado Cash uh, situation. There was kind of an exploit there where uh, uh, somebody inserted some malicious code and ended up with uh, basically all the governance tokens. And it seems like they're, they're they've now you know submitted a proposal uh, to revert back to you know to to give away those governance tokens again or to burn them. Uh, so it should be okay, but th- that was kind of a kind of an existential threat for Tornado Cash because the, there was basically no recourse uh, for for the other token holders uh, at that point because uh, yeah, there was uh, you know they have a governance model that's decentralized and uh, somebody had exploited a vulnerability there and, and ended up with a control that, a degree of control that, that basically made it uh, an unusable protocol. Can you talk a little bit about um, you know the, the solution you're talking about for Jura blockchains uh, can do for for data governance situations? Sure. So uh, so I, I haven't studied up on that particular exploit and you know Tornado Cash is a whole uh, issue unto itself about what it's doing in terms of you know being a privacy mixer. But in general, it's a, it, it sounds like it's an example of a way that a smart contract or a system of smart contracts gets exploited so that it's getting used in a way that nobody intended. Uh, and therefore, it's violating the spirit of the contractual agreement, even if the code of the smart contract itself is susceptible of being used that way. Uh, and, and what Jurat allows the smart contract drafters and, and the DAO creators to do is to have the court as a backstop in the event of unforeseen circumstances, which is essentially what every person who enters into any contract does. Because no matter how many pages you put into a contract, there's always going to be unforeseen circumstances that you can't account for. And the transaction costs to try to account for lots of circumstances is great and and prevents some contracts from forming unless you have background rules and unless you can rely on a court to impose rules that are reasonable, to impose rules that comply with what the party's actual intent was, regardless of whether they may have imperfectly expressed that intent, and to address you know, the inevitable circumstances that come along in the real world that you haven't accounted for in writing. You know, there's there's contracts that go on for thousands of pages in in uh, commercial interactions, and those things still end up in litigation. So, um, so, so, so Jura can stand behind those smart contracts and allow this uh, resort to court when things like that happen. From a from a DAO governance perspective, it also lets the creators 
go hands off. They don't need to maintain a key or anything like that in order to be able to alter the smart contract when unforeseen circumstances arise. Instead, smart contract can respond to what the court is saying. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, I think we're in a really interesting time for, for DAO governance uh, at the moment. There's some some interesting court cases going on, kind of establishing liability uh, for token holders and, and founders and so on. And uh, it seems like we're in uh, a time of probably a time of transition. And it, it's it's interesting because I, I think uh, I think the DAO model is is potentially quite a valuable one from a governance perspective, and uh, it would be great to to see uh, the solutions worked out for for how we can make this work. I, I mean, do you feel like those are, are are valuable or just are just overcomplicating things at the moment? Oh yeah, I, I personally I think DAOs are the most interesting use case of blockchain, in uh, as much as they unlock ways for people to cooperate that they couldn't cooperate before. And anytime people find ways to work together, new ways to work together, there's the chance to create serious value. Um, of course, it, it is very early days. We still don't know exactly what the the DAO is going to be in terms of being a, a legal entity. <clears throat> there's states uh, that are passing laws that essentially allow a DAO to incorporate similarly to an LLC. But because the LLC is the analogy, it, it, th those laws don't really let a DAO be completely decentralized. You know, there has to be an agent for service of process, uh, which implies, of course, the DAO has to be able to respond to service of process in an effective way. There has to be someone that either controls the keys or a, a governance method for for control of, of the DAO. And so... Uh, what, what those laws are getting at is the fundamental issue that when you have an entity that is doing business, there has to be a way to resolve the legal rights amongst the people who are participating in the business to make sure that they're being treated fairly and according to the expectations of, of, a, of, a, of a participant, similarly to the way that shareholders have rights in a corporation. But also when you have a legal entity performing uh, a service uh, or, or some other uh, way in which it's inter interfacing with the public, you know, there's third parties have rights vis-a-vis -vis that legal entity, and those have to be able to be addressed as well. Uh, you know, using the most analogous form, which is a corporation, both of those aspects are resolved in courts, the aspects of the rights of people within the corporation and the aspect of the rights of third parties dealing with the corporation. And so the, the, the courts in general are the right place to work that out. And Jurat would a, allow DAOs to form in ways where you don't need to maintain an intermediary or a manager that's in charge of the DAO because the smart contracts themselves can understand what the court is saying and, and, and respond accordingly. You don't need someone who is basically going to read the court order, ask the lawyer what it means, and then, you know, be able to sit down at a keyboard and have enough control over the DAO to enforce it. Because all those things, of course, diminish decentralization, and some of them are completely antithetical to the reasons for forming a DAO in the first place. Yeah, um, I mean, we were discussing this at the DMI Symposium uh, a week or two ago um, uh, when we were talking about DeFi and 
I think the the panel generally agreed that uh, that DAOs are, are are valuable and innovative and inclusive modes of governance, but we're we're still in need of the regulatory uh, handle for 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 supervisors to uh, uh, to to operate with them, and and it's not entirely clear what that looks like. But I think uh, what you're talking about having uh, the ability to enforce core orders would be would get us quite a long way towards that. Yeah, I think so too. It, uh, it, it, it solves for the regulators need to be able to exert authority over these entities. And it solves for the, the needs of the people who are deciding whether to participate in these entities to know that they can get all the benefits of the corporate form, you know, so, so they have limited liability. You know, they don't have to worry that they're going to be personally responsible for what the DAO is doing yeah. uh, at the same time that they can enforce their rights, similar to, like, for example, a shareholder derivative action. I see. Yeah. Um, fantastic. All right. Well, I think we should uh, we should wind up there. But um, can you tell me a little bit about what's next for Jura? You know, where are you going from here? What's the what's the roadmap for you guys at the moment? Yeah. So, so our focus will continue to be on bringing the current state of the law and such regulations is get passed going forward into the realm of the courts in a way where they can be effectively enforced and enjoyed in decentralized environments. And so where I see that at is uh, real world assets. So any, any form of tokenization, uh, smart contracts and layer one implementations, uh, for example, in an EVM environment. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining me, Mike. Uh, and thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been a very interesting discussion for me. I've certainly learned a lot. Uh, do follow us on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, and you can go to our website, omfif.org, to see upcoming events, publications, uh, more podcasts. You can follow us on Spotify and Podbean uh, and get all our content on demand at omfif.org as well. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth Podcast.